talk about a follow-up topic that we discussed last week briefly, which is intangible assets. Will's going to take us on a bit of a journey. We're going to dive into accounting standards, and then we're going to do a case study as well. Stay tuned. We introduced in the last episode the idea of the value factor drawdown. According to a number of financial analysts, such as Mabusan and Callahan, and academics such as Baruch Lev, one reason for the underperformance of value investing in the past decade is distortion of earnings and book value by intangible investments. There are a few papers that have come out. One of those is a white paper released two months ago by Mabusan and Callahan of Morgan Stanley called Expectations and the Role of Intangible Investments. Another paper was released five months ago called Reports of Values Death, maybe greatly exaggerated. It covers the same topic, saying that failing to capitalize internally developed intangible assets causes value factor underperformance of between 2 to 3%. To give you an idea of the effect of this underperformance, $1 compounded at 2.5% over a typical 47-year working life is $3.20. A further paper called Explaining the Recent Failure of Value Investing by Baruch Lev and Srivastava was published a year and five months ago. It states that accounting standards no longer serve to identify value, leading to systematic underperformance of things like the value factor, especially for glamour stocks. Recall that these are the ones in the top third of the universe nominated for shorting by the traditional price-to-book ratio used to construct the value factor. So this episode contains a discussion of how to apply methods discussed in these articles in order to avoid the trap that value investors appear to be falling into. We will start with some definitions and a brief excursion through the history of the information age and events occurring during the two major value factor drawdowns in Samanoff's 200 years of value factor performance. The reason for this is there has been a change in the rate of use of intangible assets over this period accelerating in the information age. So let's start with some definitions. Given that the podcast is about first principles, we need to get some definitions out of the way. Ben, could you start us off with a definition of accounting? Yeah, let's not make it too complicated either. Let's just remember what accounting is. Well, first off, it's the measurement and then the recording of financial information of a company. The measurement of their assets, the measurement of their liabilities on the balance sheet. And then it's also the measurement of their revenue and their expenses on the statement of financial performance. Keep it as simple as that. The more interesting thing is once we start to get into specifics. So as Will mentioned, we're here to talk about intangible assets. So this is based on the International Accounting Standards IAS 3.8. So if anyone out there wants to read it themselves, an intangible asset, the definition is an identifiable non-monetary asset. So let's just get that. It's identifiable and it's not cash. So an identifiable non-money asset without physical substance. An asset is a resource that is controlled by the entity as a result of past events and from which future economic benefits are expected. And there's three critical attributes of an intangible asset. First one, as I mentioned before, it's identifiable. So you can point to it, so to speak. You can control it is the second one. 
The third is that there's future economic benefits. Also, the accounting standards dig a little bit into the identifiability criteria and says that to be identifiable and to meet that criteria, it has to be separable. In other words, you can sell it or you can transfer it or license it to someone, could possibly rent it out or exchange it for something else, or it arises from a contractual or other legal rights, regardless of whether those rights are transferable or separable. So some examples, patents, patent and technology, computer software, databases, trade secrets, you know, what's the secret source in McDonald's burgers, for example, trademarks, newspaper mastheads, internet domains, video and audiovisual material, customer lists, licenses, import quotas, franchise agreements, and marketing rights. So that's a few examples of them. I think we've got our head around what an intangible asset is. Let's just reiterate, it's non-physical, it's non-monetary, it's identifiable, controlled it, and it has future economics. Was there any separate definition also of research and development that maybe you can go through? Let's have a look at research and development as well. I think it's important to note what is research and development and then also how they're recognising the financial statement. Your initial recognition of research and development costs, you charge all research costs to the expense as per IAS 38.54. Development costs are capitalized only after technical and commercial feasibility of the asset for sale or use has been established. This means that the entity must intend to be able to complete the intangible asset and either use it or sell it and be able to demonstrate how the asset will generate future economic benefits. So for research... The initial recognition, a research and development project required in a business combination, so this is where you're purchasing research and development, possibly through a merger and acquisition, is recognized as an asset. So it's only those internal research and development costs that are expensed. So I think maybe if we just unpack that initial recognition, I think the key criteria for me was that it said that Okay, here it is. So recognition criteria. An entity should recognize an intangible asset, whether purchased or self-created, if and only if you recognize research and development as an intangible asset, if and only if it is probable that the future economic benefits that are attributable to the asset will flow to the entity and the cost of the asset can be measured reliably. This requirement applies whether an intangible asset is acquired externally or generated internally. So the probability of future economic benefits must be based on reasonable and supportable assumptions about conditions that will exist over the life of the asset. That's the critical sentence that I think for me means that you don't do what we're going to talk about in, in a minute, which is Malbusen's idea of moving the expense over into the balance sheet and recording it as an asset. In other words, capitalizing the expense. So I just want to reiterate that sentence. The probability of future economic benefits must be based on reasonable and supportable assumptions about conditions that will exist over the life of the asset. The probability recognition criteria is always considered to be satisfied for intangible assets that are acquired separately or in a business combination. So remember when companies do up their financial statements, they would be looking at that definition of IAS 38.22 and recognizing that they have to determine the future probability of the economic benefits before they can record it as an asset. Otherwise they would record it as an expense. So it's quite clear cut to me. Thanks for reading out those definitions. I'm almost ready to launch into what Mabusan has to say basically in response to that definition, but I thought I'd get another a couple of handy definitions 
that they actually provide in their white paper out of the way before we get going. They've provided a definition of an equity investor. I'm quoting here. The one job of an equity investor is to take advantage of gaps between expectations and fundamentals. Expectations reflect the future free cash flows a company must deliver to justify today's stock price. Fundamentals capture the company's actual results. Tomorrow's outcomes that are different than today's perceptions lead to revisions in expectations that are the source of excess returns. Close quote, and that's from page two. From the next page, they give a definition of an investment. Quote, an investment is a cost today that creates an asset that is expected to provide a benefit measured by the present value of future free cash flow. The net present value of an investment is positive when the benefit is greater than the cost, close quote. Ben, what you said in your definition of research and development made me think of another quote from page four. Quote, in the fall of 1974, back when tangible assets were greater than intangible ones, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, FASB, published a seemingly innocuous statement about the treatment of research and development, or R&D. The FASB said that companies should expense R&D spending. They considered other treatments, including capitalizing R&D, but concluded that expensing was appropriate because there is normally a high degree of uncertainty about the future benefits of individual research and development projects and a direct relationship between research and development costs and specific future revenue generally has not been demonstrated. In other words, the head accountants said that R&D should be expensed because it is uncertain and there is a lack of causal relationship between expenditures and benefits, even when profits do go up. Accounting professors who studied the standards the FASB enacted in its first quarter century of existence found that the expensing of R&D was one of the five associated with the most loss in shareholder value. The position this white paper is advancing is that the criteria for shifting the expenses incurred in R&D are too strict for shifting the expense incurred for R&D across to the balance sheet as an asset. Sorry, I don't read that sentence that way. So that's on page four of the Morgan Stanley report. And I agree with the first sentence, but the second sentence where they say accounting professors who study the standards for FASB enacted in its first quarter century of existence found that the expensing of R&D was one of the five associated with the most loss in shareholder value. I don't think the follow-on from that necessarily means that they agree that the expenses should be capitalised. That's what you're inferring from that sentence, aren't you? Yep. The way I read that sentence is that they say that accounting professors recognise that R&D expenses loses a lot of shareholder value. It doesn't say that they, and therefore they think it should be uh, capitalised. It's just spending money on R&D often doesn't generate profit or economic value for an investor. That's all they're saying. Ah, uh, okay. The next paragraph is notwithstanding the substantial change in how companies invest, how companies account for investment has changed very little. The notable exception are intangibles acquired through mergers and acquisitions, which you brought up in your discussion of the definition. Accountants record the acquired intangible assets on the balance sheet and amortize them over time. 
typically five to 10 years. The next paragraph is the accounting mismatch lies at the core of the challenge and analysts needs to understand where investments show up on the financial statements in order to know how much a company invests. Investors and economists who suggest that investment is limited, capital expenditures and changes in working capital are missing the boat by grossly understanding the magnitude of investment. To me, this, this gets to the point, is there a formal definition of internally developed intangible assets? Because basically, this is the concept that's being discussed in this white paper in which all of these analysts and researchers are up in arms about. Yeah, well, they contrast it with those that you purchase. Intangible assets, regardless of whether they're purchased or developed internally, are still the same categories. It's just, if you purchase them, you record them as an asset. Okay, but you did say that through research and development, you may internally develop an intangible asset. And there are some strict criteria where it is no longer merely recognized as an expense, but it becomes an actual intangible asset on the balance sheet if it's a patent that the business can reliably earn an income from exclusively, right? Compared to other businesses because it's developed this patent. Is that how an R&D expense becomes an intangible asset on the balance sheet? It's based on that three criteria that I mentioned earlier, which is basically if you can identify it, you can control it, and you can get economic benefits from it, then you can record it as an asset. The sticking point this is all boiling down to is the probability of economic benefits being realized from the expenses that you're incurring to develop it, whether the R&D or the patent, whatever it may be. That's right. So it seems like what this white paper and the academics that they summarize in the paper their thrust is that we should be a bit more charitable in our treatment of R&D and essentially consider all of it, all of the expenses for R&D, not as a cost to be recorded on the income statement, but rather to be an intangible asset. What so, this all boils down to is regardless of whether you record this thing on an asset or on the balance sheet or whether you record it on the income statement as an expense, all of this boils down to probability that it's it's going to generate outsized improved financial performance for the company. The recognition of it, whether it's on a balance sheet or the expenses, does impact your calculations, but put those calculations to the side and just think of it in actual reality for a company. They're still incurring these costs. They're paying the staff to do whatever it is they're doing in research and development. Is that activity going to generate some financial benefit in the future? That's where this really gets tricky. And whether you want to record them as an asset or whether you want to call them an expense, the real value is trying to somehow quantify that future benefit. Yeah, and, and I think there's more than two ways you can respond to this. This episode is about sort of two ways. As we wade into this, we can sort of bear in mind that there has been this massive drawdown in what's supposed to be one of the most reliable ways to get money out of the market the value factor. So some investment managers are desperately scrabbling around and even considering bending accounting rules and standards set up by FASB, as we are discussing here, summarizing this white paper. But also later on in my introduction here, before we unleash Ben on Pinterest, is to look at how innovation cycles go and how society responds to what happens when there's a 
huge amount of innovation and the upheaval that that can cause for businesses and systems in society, which is another way to see how or to anticipate these value factor drawdowns and also to anticipate recoveries in this investing method. So let's just keep going with the summary to this white paper that I'm going through and then a bit of exploration of this idea of what happens when there's a huge amount of innovation and subsequent upheaval in society. Continuing with the first angle of looking at whether accounting rules are correct and adequate and whether they should be bent, I'm going to quote a bit more from this white paper. So the first quote is, what is in an investor's control is gaining a solid understanding of a company's prospects for creating value. This requires a grasp of the basic unit of analysis, which answers the fundamental question of how a company makes money. The basic use of analysis for Walmart and other retailers is the return on investment for a store. Net present value is the tried and true way to conduct this analysis. A store creates value if the present value of future free cash flows it generates exceeds the investment the company makes in it. Continuing the quote, it follows that a grasp of the magnitude and return on investment is central to understanding value. This point was made nearly 60 years ago in a seminal paper, Dividend Policy, Growth and the Valuation of shares by Merton Miller and Franco Medigliani, economists who won the Nobel Prize. They pointed out that you can think of the value of a company as having two parts. The first is the steady state, which assumes that the firm can sustain its current profits into the future. The second is the present value of growth opportunities, which is based on the magnitude of investment, return on investment, and period that investment opportunities are available. End quote. That's from page two. Continuing the summary, I have another quote from page two. Here is the key insight. Understanding the magnitude and return on investment provides an investor with a better understanding of a company's future earnings. The challenge is that the mix of investment has shifted over time and is today more intangible than tangible. That means the recording of investments has largely migrated from the balance sheet to the income statement. An investor's job has not changed, but the analytical approach has, end quote. That was from page two, as I said. And another quote, this time from page three, regarding the usefulness of earnings. Investments that are recorded on the income statement reduce earnings and can even lead to losses. A reallocation of those investments to the balance sheet leads to higher earnings and invested capital. Comparing today's valuations to those of the past using simple metrics such as a price to earnings or price to book multiple can lead to misleading or faulty conclusions. So again, this is touching on the idea that the accounting standards are inadequate and it's starting an argument basically with FASB and uh, the, the definitions of intangible assets and, and research and development, which Ben recited, because basically these investors in their search for an answer or in their attempts to keep up with other investors that are using different approaches than the value factor are seeking to rearrange how we approach accounting to essentially try to change the way we look at intangible investments so that we can essentially change the way that we recognize return on the capital that's being used by the business, I guess is a way to put it. Yeah. After this introduction, Mabusan and Callahan then discuss the measurement of, characteristics of, and implications for investors of intangible assets. 
Uh, point number one, measurement involves first categorizing the intangible asset into either computerized information, such as software, innovative property, such as research and development, or economic competencies, such as brands. Ben, you raised these topics already in the previous episode. They mention work by Corrado and colleagues, which has found businesses have almost doubled investment in intangible assets in the 40 years from 1977 to 2017. Over the same period, investment in tangible assets has decreased. This matches the observation in Wikipedia of a mid-20th century epochal shift from traditional industry established by the Industrial Revolution to an economy primarily based upon information technology, that is, the emergence of the information age. Point number two, the information age began 61 years ago when Muhammad Atala and Dawan Khan invented the metal oxide semiconductor field effect transistor, or MOSFET, in 1959. This meant that small computers could be made with initially tens of thousands and by now billions of transistors on a single device. With this development, we went from computers that filled rooms to computers on our wrists. Like the steam engine that powered the industrial age starting in 1760, 200 years later, the MOSFET began powering the information age. Listeners will be familiar with a number of the achievements of this age listed on Wikipedia. The list starts with the first internet message sent in 1968, only nine years after the invention of the MOSFET. It contains a number of other achievements affecting most aspects of life, from communication systems to finance to photography, operating to systems, music devices, to totally new phenomena such as web browsers and search engines. So going through this list, starting in 1968 with the first TCP IP message or internet, CCD, Unix and Visio cassettes. Then there was optical fiber, the Atari computer, the mobile phone. Microsoft was then founded in 1975. The same year was the invention of the digital camera. After that, Apple was founded. We had the five and a quarter inch flight. Floppy disk. Later on was the Walkman. 1980, we had MS-DOS, three and a half inch floppy disk. Commodore 64, the compact disk. We had then in the 80s, a 9.6 kilobit per second modem. And then Windows 1 came along in 95. Later on was the DSLR camera. Just before 1990, we had the World Wide Web. 1990 was the web browser followed by Linux and GSM. Later on, I think 1993 was Windows 3.1. 1995, we had Yahoo.com, Internet Relay Chat, the DVD, followed shortly after by the 33.6 kilobit per second modem, ICQ and USB. Then we had the 56 kilobit per second modem, ADSL, Wi-Fi and Google.com. Then around 2000, we had the Nokia 3310. Wikipedia came out soon after. We had Skype the Nokia 1100, 2004 was Facebook, Flickr, and the mirrorless camera. In 2005, finally, we began to see the emergence of the internet across the population. So we had 16% of the global population had internet. YouTube came along in 2005 as well. Shortly thereafter, we had the iPhone, Android came along. Importantly, also Bitcoin and then WhatsApp. By 2010, 30% of the global population had the internet. We also then had Instagram, soon after was Snapchat, and other developments, Windows 10, and in 2016, 47% of the global population had internet. So that's a short tour of achievements during the information age, humanity's achievements in this, this new technological age. 
The steam engine, arising during the Industrial Revolution, suddenly gave humans a huge amount of mechanical power to lift or to shift large masses long distances, perhaps best illustrated by the rise of railways. An indication of how strong society's response to this is the railway mania stock bubble which occurred in the uk in the 1840s the mosfet is the steam engine of the information age it suddenly gave humans a huge amount of computing power which could shift large amounts of information over long distances instantly to every individual alive perhaps the best illustration of this is the rise of the internet coupled with mobile phones and an indication of society's strong response to this was the tech bubble of the late 1990s whilst we're on the topic of history Let's go on a small diversion into the period from 1890 to 1910, when the last major 59% value factor drawdown happened, discussed in the previous episode. Also mentioned in the last episode was O'Shaughnessy Asset Management's point that periods of great technological progress can match with a value factor drawdown because, quote, clusters of innovation replace existing business models through creative destruction. Well, According to Wikipedia, 1890 to 1910 gave birth to the mass-produced bicycle and car. Flight was also invented. It was also punctuated by a depression starting with the Panic of 1893. This involved a number of banks going under and four railroads going bankrupt. Quoting Wikipedia, the huge spike in unemployment combined with the loss of life savings by failed banks meant that a once secure middle class could not meet their mortgage obligation. As a result, many walked away from recently built homes. From this, the site of vacant Victorian or haunted house entered the American mindset. So basically, all the cool things we had in the 20th century, cars and planes, were developed over the period of one of the greatest value factor drawdowns in 200 years. And there was a financial crisis and housing bust eerily similar to what happened in the next drawdown of the same magnitude 100 years later. Surely the commencement of mass-producing cars, bicycles and planes would have to rank with one of the greatest periods of creative destruction history, not to mention all the scientific advancements that happened during this time, chief amongst which was Marie Curie discovering radon, which ultimately led to the biggest energy and warfare advancement of the ensuing century, nuclear power and nuclear bombs. Let's have a quick glance over the technology innovation-induced trail of creative destruction wrought during the present, now in fact largest value factor drawdown of 64%, according to Samanoff in a recent Financial Times article. He said it started in 2006, a decade filled with advancements in genetic research, starting with the sequencing of the human genome in 2000. Facilitated by the technological advancement known as broadband internet, we saw the creative destruction of the entire entertainment and media edifice. No one watches broadcast TV anymore. We don't need cables for subscription TV anymore. We don't need landline phones anymore. No one reads physical newspapers anymore. No one goes to physical bookstores anymore. No one uses classified ads in newspapers anymore. Physical retail stores are going bankrupt. Physical malls are going bankrupt. This is because a small group of businesses nicknamed the Fang Stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, have used the internet and smartphones to destroy all these old physical businesses and create new intangible ones using internet real estate in their place. Not to mention in recent years seeing the emergence of recyclable 
rockets, constellations of thousands of satellites for a global internet broadcasting system, flexible, lightweight, even transparent computer screens, and forget about smartphones, we also have smartwatches. We should also mention that cars have come full circle, now being battery powered like most when they were first invented, and thanks to the rise of big data and artificial intelligence during the information age, these cars now drive themselves. To top it off, now 100 years after wristwatches were introduced during the last major wave of creative destruction in the last 60% value factor drawdown, during this latest bout of innovation, we have produced smartwatches. These are a neat distillation all in one little wearable device of many of the premier new activities and functions achieved during the infant age. The Apple Watch uses its own SIM to make calls connect to the internet. It also connects to satellites using a GPS receiver to give navigation directions and recognizes speech well enough to convert it to text or give answers to questions such as what the weather will be. This list of innovations is a devastating trail of creative destruction and therefore it stands to reason that a massive value factor drawdown has occurred as a huge number of existing business models have been replaced. The innovations of the 20-year stretch from 1890 to 1910 produced a toolkit defining the contours of basically the whole 1900s, where humans then got to work all over the planet using their cars and planes and radon to fight wars and capture and use territory in totally new ways. Similarly, we look to have produced another big new toolkit in the past 20 years in the latest value factor drawdown. The major scientific advancement is genetic sequencing, which, admit it, will lead to engineered humans, the curing of most remaining major diseases, and routine engineering of farm animals, and probably creation of new bespoke animals. With the emergence of flexible, transparent computer screens, the natural progression will be to place them over the eyes as contact lenses, whereupon humans will become cyborgs if we aren't already due to smartphone addiction discussed in the previous episode. To complete the parallel with the 1890s, of course, we had a global financial crisis and recession in 2008 and a housing bust, which also resulted in vast neighborhoods, for example, many whole suburbs in Detroit, essentially being abandoned. Just to finish things off, a once in a century level plague has caused another recession in 2020, with many people expecting a depression. Now that we've gotten that diversion out of our system, let's return to intangible assets. It was actually a useful diversion as it illustrated the emergence of a whole slew of businesses whose operations involve far fewer tangible assets than the older businesses they destroyed. For example, the online Amazon bookstore eventually destroyed the Borders physical bookstore chain. Borders had many more tangible assets in terms of bookstores than Amazon, yet it lost the competition and went bankrupt. Amazon, seemingly using intangible assets alone, beat a business that relied on a tangible expression of a bookstore, which, by the way, had a great brand and lots of loyal customers. This is a nice scene setter for why we should pay attention to intangible assets to properly understand investing opportunities for businesses of the information age. Over to Ben, who believes I've started an argument with him about how the tangible assets line item, which already exists on the balance sheet, isn't big enough and needs adding to by capitalizing R&D and other expense, which could result in internal or in-house intangible investment. He thinks it's wrong that we are 
understating intangible assets by not counting these supposed internal intangible assets. Take it away, Ben. Alrighty, let's do a case study on Pinterest. So just to recap, what we'll actually do is look at the last three years of financial statements for Pinterest. I think I'll just focus mainly on 2019 though and apply Malbusen's methodology or approach to allocating research and development, sales and marketing and general and admin, which are normally recorded as an, as an expense, as I mentioned before, when we went through the accounting standards, apply those percentages. So 100% for research and development, 70% for sales and marketing and 20% for general admin expenses over into the balance sheet as an asset. So can you just uh, tell us a bit about those percentages and what the reason is for even discussing them or or doing something with them? So the Malbusen Morgan Stanley report says research and development, in-house developed research and development is recorded as an expense. But given that so many companies these days actually getting economic benefit out of the research and development, then rather than recording it as an expense, it should be recorded as an asset. And he's suggesting that 100% of it should be transferred over and capitalized as an asset. He's suggesting that sales and marketing, only 70% of that should be transferred over to a capitalized asset and general and admin expenses. So staff, administration costs, only 20% of that would actually be capitalized. And basically just to tie this into the discussion of the information age and the the upset caused to establish businesses through creative destruction during a period of innovation, what they're suggesting here is a way for value investors or users of the value factor to participate during that wave of creative destruction in the more uh, glamour stocks or or growth stocks, as opposed to just sitting back and letting all the creative destruction happen. And then as a value investor, a more patient and conservative investor waiting for the dust to settle and for new businesses to establish themselves and then carrying on adding new businesses to your portfolio that still satisfy more traditional ways of measuring. And the interesting uh, thing about it is, as I said before, it's the 100% allocation of research and development assumes that all of this research and development is going to become an economic benefit for the company. So there's no subtlety here in this approach. It's really saying everything that you're doing in research and development is an asset and that asset is going to generate future economic benefit. So he's he's not hedging his bets at all with this approach. One other point that I'll make with the methodology is that if something becomes an asset, then usually it's either depreciated or amortized in the sense of intangible assets you amortize it which is similar to depreciating physical asset so for research and development he suggests six years you would amortize it over on a straight line basis sales and marketing and the general admin expenses would be amortized over just two years but let's dive into pinterest now so in 2019 pinterest had revenue of 1.1 billion. They had research and development costs of 1.2 billion. So those expenses were larger than the revenue it generated. Sales and marketing of 600 million and general and administrative expenses of $350 million. So that all generated a net loss 2019 for them of 1.36 billion loss. I won't iterate what the 
previous years were. It'll be a little bit tedious over the podcast. But when we apply the 100%, 70%, and 20% allocation, we actually end up reducing the research and development cost by 100%. So it goes to zero. Sales and marketing reduces to 180 million. And general and admin, where we only apply 20% across into assets, gets you to an expense of 280. So what's the impact of all this? I went from a net loss, as I mentioned before, of 1.36 billion. But when we apply this new approach, they achieve a profit of 317 million. And that's because your transfer of these internally developed intangible assets from the income statement means that the expenses are lower. So you're deducting less from revenue and you are are you also simultaneously adding these to the intangible assets line item on the balance sheet? That's what you're doing. And on that point, let's talk about what, how much we're transferring. So we're increasing the intangible assets by research and development of 1.2 billion. So the full amount, sales and marketing of 428 million and general and admin expense, or let's call it an asset now that it is of 70 million. So that ends up totaling $1.7 billion additional tangible assets. Now, I just don't have the financial statements in front of me, but I did quickly Google in 2019, the total assets for Pinterest was $2.39 billion. They had other intangible assets of 7.6 million only net other intangibles of 7.6 million so we're increasing that 7.6 million by 1.7 billion so total assets of 2.4 increasing it by an extra 1.7 yeah it gets you to around about 4 billion so you're almost doubling it the total assets but the interesting thing is in terms of intangible assets they almost stated that they had zero and we'll have to check the proper financial balance sheet. This is just a Google search. They're saying that they only had net intangible assets of 7.6 million. So almost zero. Well, it's 7.6 million for such a large company is practically zero. So significant impact. The next step that you have to do, once you've identified your assets and categorized them as such, you then need to amortize them over those number of years that I indicated. So six years for the research and development, two years for the other ones. The impact of that, 2019, and remember, you need to do this over a number of years because the allocation of the intangible assets would have happened in the prior year and the year before that as well. So there's a cumulative effect. But in 2019, the amortization expense would have been 625 million. So rather than having the expense of 1.7 billion, that expense essentially reduces on the income statement to 625. So you're taking off approximately a billion in expenses, if that makes sense, the net difference between the expenses of research and development, sales and marketing, general and admin, and then putting back into the income statement, the expense of the amortization, 600 million. So effectively the expenses spread across R&D, sales and marketing and general administrative, those expenses reduced by 1.7 billion. But then because of amortization, you increase them again by 600 million? That's correct. So you reduce it down by 1.7 billion, but then you have to, like all assets, 
all assets depreciate over time theory. I know we don't want to get into that debate around brands and some intangibles. Basically, you need to amortize the intangible assets over the years that we talked about. So that expense makes its way back into the income statement. And that amortization is recognized in 2019. It's not recognized the following year in 2020. Interesting question. Not sure off the top of my head. I think it should be logical that if you developed it in that year, that you would recognize it in that year as well as the first year. I mean, you could start to get a little bit clever and try and work out what quarters the actual research and development was incurred in a portion of that way. But I think for our purposes, I would record it in that year. Okay. There's a timing issue there, definitely. And I might not be 100% correct on it, but I think it's okay to do it that way. So that's your impact. And that's how it works out. Basically, you're increasing, almost doubling your assets, going from the 2.4 that we talked about up to 4.1. You're by a huge magnitude, increasing your intangible assets up to 1.7 billion. You're reducing your expenses by a net of about a billion. And the, the profit for the company, you know, depending on what, what you were calling profit, you would take from our 300 million profit, you would then take off profit from operations, let's call it. You would take off the amortization expense of 600 million and you would get to a slight negative of after the amortization expense of negative 300, just roughly 300 million. Okay, so that's a much better position seemingly than the 1.3 billion dollar net loss yeah yeah still negative interesting but depending on what if you were going to do some analysis based on profit from operation you don't include the amortization expense you're you've got a profit of 300 million there you go um and then you're probably going to get to some different conclusion you would probably divide that let's just quickly do it now 300 million divided by we said 4 billion roughly i'm going to just type that yeah in. that's right because our, our framework uses operating income, doesn't it? So that's equivalent to earnings before interest and taxes, let alone depreciation and amortization. So yeah, we wouldn't be deducting the depreciation. So we would be in a, a positive position. You would be at 300 million plus. Yeah, but 300 million divided by your total assets of 4 billion. Call it $650 million worth of cash and cash equivalents. I'm looking at the balance sheet here and there is... 15 million of goodwill and intangible assets combined. You said that there was 7 million intangible assets, so call it seven and a half, eight million in goodwill that can be deducted. So I, I reckon, impact. yeah, so if you divide it by um, 4 billion minus 650 million, so what's that? 3.35 billion. So 300 million. What divided did you say? By, 650 million. Well, there's 650 million in cash and cash equivalents. There's also 1 billion in marketable security. So you're supposed, for one of the scenarios for judging return on capital employed, you're supposed to do it without these, these and things. And meant to, meant to reduce it also by the non-interest Yes. Current liabilities. Correct. So we've got accounts payable of 34 million and accrued expenses of 141. So the total non-interest bearing current liabilities is 176 million. So if we deduct all of that, 
I reckon we're getting much closer to the 15% benchmark. So 176 million would probably take our 650 up to seven, 820 odd. Yeah, you're getting close to nine point nine and a half roughly. Quickly put together capital employed figure here. So I'm deducting from 4 billion the cash and cash equivalents of marketable securities. And I'm also deducting the non-interest bearing current liabilities, 176. So capital employed i've got 2.174 billion and it was 300 million right that was the new operating income 317 yeah divided by 2.174 billion is 14 percent, 13.8 percent. let's buy pinterest <laughs> so that that's incredible though because look at look at what it's done we've gone from negative operating income to 14 percent, basically yeah. Well, that, and I can't see your spreadsheet or anything. And we'd have to double check everything with a fresh pair of eyes. But I think if you've got the annual report open, could you just have a look at the total assets that they've recorded in the balance sheet for, I just want to confirm what I was looking at in Google was the right number. 2.393 billion. Yep. Okay. Great. Great. That was right. There. Um, happy days. So that's the methodology. It still all comes back to that idea of, do you think you're being reasonably conservative or, or, or not even reasonably conservative, but are you being reasonable by allocating 100% of research and development over according it as an asset? I don't think you're being reasonable by doing that, to tell the truth. I think that's highly bullish. I don't think every research and development cost that a company incurs will generate future economic benefit. And if you look at the research and development that Pinterest have occurred over time, it was 1.2 billion in 2019, 250 million 2018, 200 million in 2017. So they continually, for some reason, and I think you identified it the other day, there was a large increase in 2019. Yeah, that was to do with share-based compensation. And that's also discussed in the white paper. Yeah. And can you summarize that without reading it? Can you just summarize the idea there is that they've decided to pay employees a bunch of shares rather than actually giving them money in terms of a salary. And because of that, they've recorded it as a research and development expense rather than an employee normal salary cost. Yeah, I guess that means that it's not because otherwise there would accrue expenses and other liability, current liabilities, line item will be much higher. But do you reckon that makes sense that they've given them a whole bunch of shares in the company rather than paying them a salary and therefore that should be expensed from, I, I don't see it as an expense to the company really, which lends support really to Mal Boosin's case of saying that it's actually not a true expense. It's not like there's any loss to shareholders. I guess there are in, in the sense of dilution, if that's what they've, they've diluted the share base, you, you do lose out as a, an existing shareholder because it's getting diluted. I'd like to understand more about the mechanics of share-based compensation because another point that they raised in the white paper is that investors typically get it wrong calculating free cash flow because they take the cash flow from operation. They don't make any adjustments to it to account for the effect of share-based compensation, which is an issue here on the Pinterest cash flow statement. And they seek to derive an estimate of free cash flow by deducting from cash flow from operations some sort of number that reflects maintenance capital expenditure. Usually investors are conservative and they just deduct growth capex, which is the property, plant and equipment line item. But what 
the white paper says is if there have been adjustments to cash flow from operations using uh, share-based compensation, then free cash flow will be vastly overstated. And we have a classic example of that with Pinterest because the share-based compensation line item on the cash flow statement is 1.4 billion. The net loss, as you mentioned, Ben, was 1.4 billion. And so what they've done is they've deducted the share-based compensation, or rather in this case, because it's positive and the net loss is negative, they've added it. So they've come out positive for the net cash provided by operating activities. So they've got a maiden cash flow positive year in 2019, having made supposedly $657,000. So let's but just run by- through that briefly. So you would take the share-based compensation of $1.37 billion. You would take it out of your operating cash flow, and then you would place it down into the financing activities cash flow as an additional expense. So that would reduce, let's just see if we can find it. Operatingly, it's net, not an ex- net cash flow yes. provided by operating activities is, as you say, 657 1.3 billion in share-based compensation. They're going to be negative 1.3 billion in operating cash flow. Correct. That's right. And then from that, you have to deduct the purchase of property, plant and equipment, which is 33 or 34 million. So yeah, but that's inconsequential in the context of having lost 1.3 billion. So they're losing cash hand over fist. It's quite misrepresentative. I don't even know how they could have put that 1.3 share based compensation 1.3 billion in the operating cash flow because it's not like the employees actually gave them cash is it like it's not as though essentially what would have happened is they would have said to the employees we're not going to pay you money we're going to give you shares so we're actually giving you shares um so there's no transition transition of cash employees could have taken the shares and sold them and they would have received some cash, but it's not as though the company itself received any cash or even gave any. Do you know what I mean? I want to go. So I'm, I'm going to read from page 11. Investors regularly argue that businesses reliant on intangible assets are capital light, which acknowledges the limited need for tangible assets. But this argument can be misleading because these businesses often pay their employees with stock-based compensation, or SBC, such as restricted stock units, performance stock units, and employee stock options. Because these grants are not in the form of cash, accountants add back their expense in the calculation of cash from operating activities. SBC is a legitimate expense that should not be reversed. We estimate that SBC equals 15 to 20% of cash from operating activities for technology companies in the S&P 500 index. The figure is much higher for many young companies and Pinterest is a pinup for for this uh, for this phenomenon because the the share-based compensation basically wiped out the entirety of their net loss. Okay, I get it. I get it now. So basically they're starting with the net income loss of 1.36 billion which is negative because of that research and development expense of 1.2, which a large portion of it is SBC, right? So you have to go back to the starting point of the net loss in the income statement of negative 1.36 billion. And the reason it's negative is because the research and development 
costs. And we know most of that is the share-based compensation. And so to come back to a cash reality, the cash flow statement says you're negative 1.36 billion, reverse out, reverse back the share-based compensation. That gets you to a positive position on the cash from operation. So I agree with that, actually. I agree with the way that they've done it. However, Mabusin goes on to say, Capital light businesses often don't need to raise a lot of external capital because their employees provide both a source of financing and a service. SBC is tantamount to two transactions. The company sells shares or financing and uses the proceeds to pay employees or compensation for service. Investors have to move the SBC figure from the cash from operating activities section to the cash from financing activities section to accurately portray the cash flow statement. A failure to do so overstates free cash flow. Mm, we'll continue to investigate this and get some different opinions on it, and then we'll touch base on it again at a, at a later episode. Thank you.